Welcome to the very first episode of Claret and Conversation, a podcast of voices from the creative industry. My name is Katie Esbester, and I'm the founder of Clapham Publishing Services and the publisher behind Claret Press. This is our very first episode, and so I wanted to tell you a bit about how all this came about. Four years ago now, I set up Claret Press. This is undoubtedly the dumbest thing I've ever done in my whole life, which is saying something. But at that point, I had been editing off and on for 25 years, freelance for individuals and small contracts for publishing companies. And I could see that good books, which should have seen the light of day, were not getting out. So I started up Claret Press to publish those little gems that somehow fall through the cracks of the, of the publishing system. At the same time, I decided to expand my paid freelance editing company and bring new people on board to share with the editing work on the assumption that I wouldn't have time to do it. So I started up Clapham Publishing Services, which sells editing and publishing services for those who are interested in self-publishing. Because commercial publishing isn't what absolutely everybody wants. And now, thanks to modern digital technology, self-publishing is a much easier process and it's a viable option. Although it's, um, it's not quite as straightforward as Amazon would like you to believe. So fast forward a few years and I found myself meeting all sorts of people like me. People working in the creative industry, driven by a passion for the work, having to make a living somehow, bookkeeping, spreadsheets, all these unexpected new skills we had to learn. And despite the drawbacks, still insisting on doing it. I really enjoyed these conversations I was having with these people in the creative industry. You know, there are people like me, not big name celebrities, nobody really famous, precious little name dropping. We all fly below the radar. And yet together, we are part of a hundred billion pound a year industry in the UK alone. A hundred billion pounds. And the creative industry is growing at almost twice the rate of the economy since 2010. All of us, us micro-producers in the creative industry, we're its backbone. We're the ground beneath the high flyer's feet. And yet our voices are unheard. Our conversations are just between ourselves. So I decided to share the conversations, the chats, the, the talks I was having with my friends in the creative industry with everybody else in the hopes that... Um, all of you enjoy it, and, and maybe some of you will, might like to join us in the creative industry. At the very least, I hope you, you enjoy our conversations. Maybe you're listening to this while you're walking or doing the chores or driving a car, but maybe some of you are at home and can uncork a lovely bottle of claret and pour yourself a glass. If any of you are doing that, will you do me a favor? Will you raise that glass to the unsung workers of the creative industry? Join our conversation on Claret and Conversation Facebook page. Subscribe to this podcast or to the Claret Press website or the Clapham Publishing Services website. And if you've enjoyed our conversation, why not share it with others so they too can enjoy it? And now, without further ado, let's start our first conversation with another member of the creative industry. Our guest today is Nikki Beringer. Nikki is a freelance radio and audio producer who has spent much, but not all of her career, at the BBC World Service. Throughout that time, she has made many documentaries, presented regular programs, and has interviewed world-famous playwrights, directors, actors, and writers. Welcome, Nikki. Although I have to say, Hi, this Casey. is completely stressful. You know, like you're the first person <laughs> I've met and had on this show who's actually in 
audio recording. Like you actually know, well, not just know more than I do. You know more than practically anybody. No, in no, this. no, no, no. Um, audio, as anybody will say, it's it's not. You don't come to the end of learning how to do it. You are always trying to find new ways, and I love meeting people. Normally, I'm sitting there, Katie, and I'd be interviewing, <laughs> I'd be interviewing you. Maybe but, another time. Maybe, maybe another time. <laughs> so you're a freelance program maker, yeah. among other things. Among I mean, other. you have a number of arrows in your quiver, I have to say, probably more than we could kind of reasonably go over in this um, program. But, you know, this is a great excuse to have you back for a second one, is to hear about more of your creative adventures. But you're uh, a freelancer who works um, creating programs. How do you come up with ideas for programs? That's a very good question, actually, because... A lot of my colleagues, and I, I do do this, just keep their antenna sharp. That's not the right metaphor, but keep their antenna out. Always looking, looking to people. Who are you? I often, um, when I'm out with my husband socialising, will be at a dinner party, and I'll get kicks under the table because I find somebody really interesting, just listen to what they do, um, and find out more. And it's something you might, you know, go on, be on a bus or somewhere, and, and something about that person makes you think, hey, let's do a program about... Years ago, I did programs like um, What's It Like to Be Left-Handed, um, <laughs> what, it's, uh, what fascinates me is language, how people use language. So I made Indeed. a program about how children from all over the world, given that I work mainly for World Service, BBC World Service, how children learn several languages at once. Mm. which is fascinating and how the brain when you're a baby of I don't know what age you know you're just learning language you are are learning up to 12 new words every single day it is extraordinary isn't it yeah it really is so basically how do I come up with ideas I'm professionally nosy I am professionally nosy. Uh, very briefly. Well, I, but you might also, let's put this more nicely. I'd say you're obviously a very curious person <laughs> who's interested in the world around you. Well, language is the way you describe things, isn't yes. it? Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, I've uh, I've lived beside nosy, nosy people and they're, it sounds to me like you're curious about the right things. Perhaps we should say put it that way. You're nosy about the right things as opposed yeah. to being nosy. What interests me, um, as I say, language... Um, how people relate to each other, people, what what drives people. Even if they're perhaps the press might portray them as inherently bad, there must be something good about that person. So if it interests me, there must be a lot of people out there who are also interested. And I feel it's my job to find a subject and just delve and get that message out. It sounds like your curiosity drives you. Yes, I'm nosy. <laughs> <laughs> but you've managed to turn this into a career. Uh, yeah. I've been, I have been very lucky. Let's not beat about the bush. I have been very lucky working at the BBC at a time when ideas were easy to sell. When I say sell, mm. get yeah. them on the air. Indeed. Nowadays, you have to all but make the programme before, you know, we write it all out on paper. And selling is a big part of programme making. Yes, well, the world is, has changed. The world it? has changed enormously. So, what do you think about this new technology we're dealing with? Like you I and think me, we're sitting in in Clapham Old Town, and it's great chatting over our, our a cup of coffee. And it, would you call this a radio program? I can't believe yeah. that we can make a radio program well, in my kitchen. You can, and this this is great because ever since we um, the internet burst onto our into our lives, anybody with a camera with a with a a video camera with a with microphones. There's some lovely microphones in front of us here. You can get your message out. And I, back in the 90s when the internet burst into our lives, I soon realised that um, 
anybody with a camera, a video camera, or in my case, a microphone, can broadcast. And I... It, I was amazed that no, if I thought of it, how come everybody else isn't thinking about it? Now they are. Now anybody yes, with a website yes. uses it for yeah, marketing. Yeah, like me. <laughs> yes, anybody with a website. Now we could be talking, okay, you, you mentioned Clapham, which is part of South London. Yes. But we could be talking to somebody in Malaysia, in Indonesia, who hasn't a clue, hasn't a clue where Clapham is as part yes, of London. Indeed. And that's what thrills me. You know, now that you mention it, there was um, some very interesting work done by, this is, quite the segue so uh, follow me if you can (laughs) in central america in the 1970s and 80s they were organizing to overthrow a very powerful very powerful dictators backed Mm. by the american government Mm. and the way they're getting their ideas across and um, trying to persuade the people to join their guerrilla movements was through radio and then this is predominantly in El Salvador, became quite famous in El Salvador. And believe it or not, they're supported by things like the Jesuit coalition in Canada, who thought this was a very admirable thing to do. Once the governments changed in the 1980s, the new revolutionary, in quotes, government, depending on your political perspective, how revolutionary they are, um, were used, continued to use radio technology to explain things like nutrition, you know, the importance of eating carrots, which because they had people had the idea that now that there's a, a revolution and they've got a government in it, they like they can all eat nothing but meat, as it turns out, pork, they eat pork all the all the time. And, and the cat was kind of like, you know, like, why don't you cut down on the meat? And eat, a little, <laughs> eat a few more carrots. Yes. You know? But that's the yeah. power of radio. Yeah. And what we're living through now, we're living through a period of enormous change. People have that power at home to influence. I mean, you only have to look at Instagram. Yes, which indeed. is quite frightening how I read in the paper the other day, and print press is still very, very important, very important. I read in the paper the other day, there was a 19-year-old who's making th- tens of thousands of pounds, people using their children to, to yes, endorse. And, yes. and I think this period, it, the, the internet hasn't settled down. We, we have a Pandora's box. We can't get it back in. It can be quite dangerous. It influences elections. Sure. Which yes. is another whole topic. Yes, and not to mention those right those wingnut jobs that go into mosques and kill people. Exactly. You know, it influences them too. Yes, it's and not it's uncontrollable. Yes. but hopefully, one has to believe in the power of good over evil. Indeed. And most people in this world will want their lives. They want good lives for their children. They want to be happy. They want to live in peace. Indeed. So, so we have to believe in that. Tell us about the 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 work of art. We always ask this of all our guests, you know, what is the work of art that has most inspired you to change your life? And it can be every, anything, anything and everything. What was the transformative piece <laughs> of, of creativity that inspired you? You asked me to think about this. I've been wrecking my brains, Katie, about this. Because I do go and see lots of works of art. I'm Indeed. very, very lucky. I go to art exhibitions, see the masters, you know, been to all the great art exhibitions in the world. But what's the one that's really influenced me? For the sake of conversation, one of the best bits of audio was way back, again, possibly late 80s, early 90s, I can't remember. I remember, I can tell you which studio I was in when I heard the first edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, if you don't live in the UK and you don't know The Hitchhiker's (laughs) Guide to the Galaxy, it was a a seminal um, radio um, no, it went global. I think in yeah. fairness. I uh, heard it as a child. But it was radio first. 
yes, it, it was radio. Very, radio. My point is just just to explain that it was it's a it, it's about a group of characters who travel in space. That's all you need to know, and it was hugely comic. But the sound effects done by a department now just defunct called the Radiophonic Workshop at the BBC were amazing, using stereo. And they had these these ray guns, these shotguns going from left to right in mm-hmm, stereo. Mm-hmm. As if you could see them. And they yeah. wore the old adage, the old cliche, pictures are much better in radio. And I remember... <laughs> I hadn't heard that old yeah, adage. Heard that that That's no, a fantastic adage. The, the scenery is much better in radio. We, it's, it's a given. It's a given. We, we all know that. And uh, hearing the, the work and where you can be taken in audio... And I, I've done an awful lot of radio drama in, when I was very young. I did. Um, I used to be an engineer and used to do the teacups and the doors and all that. I I knew the work, and this was pre-tape. So if anything really inspired me about what radio can do, what audio can do, was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, directed, I think, by Jeffrey Perkins. And so where were you? You said you you can remember exactly where you were when you heard it. One of the announcers was doing a trail for The Hitchhiker's Guide. I was in Studio S6 in Bush House, a large cavernous studio. Um, and I was the studio manager, the engineer, and mixing this trail, actually, to be honest, it wasn't the whole program. So I thought, I've got to go and hear this because they were putting it out on World Service. It had been out to a UK audience uh-huh. and you had to hear it with headphones. And they're, I mean, they're, they're huge, great armies of people who could keep the old archives and listen every, you know, yeah. with, with headphones. And you had fabulous characters like, say, Ford Beeblebrox, who had yes. um, two heads. <laughs> and it was it was continued Nowadays, you can still, they still do shows. A great friend of mine, Dirk Maggs, is doing touring shows of The Hitchhiker's Guide. He's a huge aficionado. Yes. Um, well, and there are, I, I think it's genuinely a, a, a global phenomenon. Yes. Um, and It was a film. Yes. Martin Freeman. Yes, it was. I think it was more than one film, wasn't there? Yes, wasn't there was two a television films? series, yeah. which wasn't yeah. great. Yeah. But the, one of the classic lines was Arthur Dent having an international scholastic highway built through his house. And he just says, look, I'm a bit upset about that. <laughs> Very British humour. <laughs> so, so, Nikki, tell us how you ended up at the BBC World Service. Um, luckily for me, and I, I'm ashamed to say this, given that there might be some very young listeners, <laughs> when I say mm. young, you know, people starting out in their careers. I was exceptionally lucky. I um, had spent a year in France. My French was good, I can mm-hmm. say, because I'm half French and I was really, you know, up to speed. Wanted to use it. I was on a bus with a girlfriend of mine, a school friend, and going past Bush House on the Strand in London, central London. She said, why don't you write to them? So I did. And I got a, a telephone call um, saying, come in for an interview. That's uh, ludicrous. It That's is ludicrous. Uh, look, look, like, I'm looking at a sound engineer, Chelsea, who's just shaking her head. It was as a secretary. <gasps> yeah, she's she's barely out of nappy. She's so young. And she's I'm just sorry, like, Chelsea. I can't, I really, this reality. Is I, I, just... would, I would add, I didn't go in as a sound engineer. I went in as a secretary. And from there, I... Um, had to wait two years in a job I hated, absolutely loathed with passion. But I had been into a studio and I thought, that's what I want to do. Okay. And then I got onto the next um, studio manager's course. They they hired, I mean, the best way to describe a studio manager is as a sound engineer. But in fact, we're not engineers. We we, we don't carry screwdrivers. We, mm-hmm. present tense, do you notice? Yes, this indeed. Is, this indeed. is several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they employed in those days people who were artistic. And, Why? Because um, they had to deal with, with difficult producers, with actors, with people, current affairs producers who were on deadlines, who could shout and scream at you. Um, and you had to have um, a huge number of skills. You ought to have, 
you had to have what we joked called what was called manual dexterity, okay. which we thought was just carrying a whole lot of tapes and a cup of coffee and trying to get into the studio at the same time. Um, but it meant being able to um, do nice fades on studios in live in a live situation and deal with difficult characters. And deal with difficult characters. Well, not tapestry not, of humanity. Yes, but we, we met some, you know, that some Lovely. fantastic, fantastic people. Fantastic. Well, I do think that one of the, uh, just to bring this back into the creative industry, because you're a freelancer now, one of the things that has astonished me being running my own business is just, shall we say, the manual dexterity I need to have to run my business. It's, you know, I must do 20 different things mm. in a day and 200 different things in a week. Mm. I'm it's exhausting, frankly. I would like to be able to just narrow that down to maybe five or ten. I never forget. There was a, a, a businessman, industrialist called Charles Handy, who wrote about business. And, mm-hmm. and, he's, and he just said, in the beginning of the 90s, we're going to have to move into a portfolio existence. Lots of freelancers who have lots of skills. And I just identified with that straight away and tried to broaden my skill base. I went freelance after about 15 years in the BBC. Um, I can't. There, are, there have been times. I'll be honest, Katie. I've been thinking, why am I trying to do this? Why yeah, am I we all to... think that, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> why don't I just stick to one and be yeah. well? But um, and do you think that people who are more artistic or creative, or do do you think we've got a bit of a leg up in that regard? Um, in what regard do you mean exactly? Be, the to create to a portmanteau of skills. Um, yes, I do. I do. What? But what you must have. And the, I mean, I can name a whole lot of skills, but I'm still not quite that because yet. The one skill I'm not good at is marketing and selling. Oh, God, yes. I mean, <laughs> telling people what's out there. I can, I, I've, I've had the most fantastic jobs um, working with some very, very interesting, very not always famous, are the interesting people, but loads of names. But the it's no good doing that if you're just doing it in your back bedroom and nobody knows about it. I, I set up a website back in the... Turn of the turn of the century. About 15, I know what you mean. Yes, yeah. fifteen years ago, and I put all my energy into interviewing writers. Mm-hmm. Now looking back, I had to close it because I, it was fabulous. I interviewed wonderful writers, but I wasn't making it viable. Yes, I wasn't making any money out of it, basically. And looking back, what perhaps I should have done was say, put aside some money. I thought I could do it all myself, mm-hmm. and hire. A marketing person hire somebody who knows about this thing knows yes. about who knows about marketing who knows about algorithms and yes I do and I can market I, I'll be honest I had to learn it's not what I like doing well isn't that the whole reality though about when you're a freelancer or you have a small business you spend a lot of time doing jobs you don't learn you, do, you know yeah so I've, I've had people ask me you know what's the thing you've learned the most in the last three years or four years I've done Claret Press now for four years yeah. and I I bet they're thinking I'm talking about the Oxford comma versus the non-serial. It's like, no, no. What I've spent the last four years learning is technology, Hmm. how to upload and utilize it and maximize it and compare various pieces of technology and what works for this book, what works. It's just such a bore. You know, and add to that marketing and add to that accounting and spreadsheets and bookkeeping. But it's... Wonderful. I mean, what what I love about radio is that even though the human voice is, is one type of radio and audio, there, there's masses of others that either you've got you've got music or you've got news going on in the background and yes. people are giving it say sixty to seventy percent of their attention. If you get the right bit of audio, particularly drama, for example, or a documentary, you can 
you've got them in the palm of your hand. And that's wonderful, isn't it? And that is wonderful. What I love about audio, when it really works, yes, is silence. Somebody, uh, it was Terry Wogan, the great broadcaster, he said, a bit of silence will draw people in. And what you've, what it also does, I always think of one, one good thing about audio is it's like I'm on somebody's shoulder and I'm talking into their ear because we're only talking to one person, Katie, and that's why audio works so much better. So how did you move from the BBC World Service to being freelance? Like, what was the transition that uh, happened there? What happened was after um, I did 10 years of being a, a sound engineer, which I loved, I realised uh, I've got to move on. You know, okay. I've done it now. Yeah, you've and ticked that box. I've ticked that box. And I wanted to be more creative and I wanted to go out yes. meeting people. This and is a very familiar story with people <laughs> kind of, who I think, especially those who are got the creative drive the way you do, is that they think, okay, I've, I've done this now. Now I need to do something else. And that... It's that base. restlessness. Yes, it was a restlessness. But I did, I have to say, that basis of technology, of, mm-hmm. of technical skills, it's a bit like riding a bicycle. You don't know you've got it. You don't know that's a skill until other people haven't got it. Yes. And I... Um, said earlier and looking at your microphones I'm fascinated by microphones the, I do like microphones I get interested about microphones stupid I get interested about headphones microphones more than headphones people buy shoes people buy handbags forget it I'm not interested I'm interested in technology how boring is that but there we are that's no, another that, I, I'll agree with you that <laughs> is fairly dull <laughs> <laughs> but anyway but anyway you were telling us about why you decided to leave the BBC World Service I left the BBC World Service and I didn't I went freelance. I just changed the terms of my working contract. I had gone from being an operator, a studio manager, to being a producer. And I was stuck in the office. Other people were going out. Having fun. Having fun. And I thought something's wrong here. So the only way to do it was to go freelance. And that meant I could actually um, go out with a microphone. As I kept saying, I hadn't had enough of sticking a microphone up people's noses. (laughs) I I wanted to go out and meet people and, you know, find out what makes them tick. And I was very lucky that by now I, I had a partner, I was married. And so, you know, I could afford to do it financially and take the risk, although it, that didn't prove too much of a risk. And I, I got um, presenting jobs on the back of that. So in the 90s, I was presenting for BBC World Service. And I was in a sort of state where you are having such fun that you don't think it's going to end. And it did. But yes. things, nothing stays the same. I've learned yes. nothing, like nothing stays the same. Yeah, that, that, all good things must come to an end. So yes. how did it come to an end? Nikki? Well, it was just that um, John Burt came in, who's the director mm. general of the BBC, great reforms. I was doing a programme called Write On, which was a feedback programme, and I had terrific liberty. I'd get a letter from Nigeria saying, why don't we get such and such programme on the air, or, or holding up a uh, an editor to a mistake. And I would just waltz into their room the office of that editor mm-hmm. and with my microphone and get the answer and put them on the spot and walk out again and then yeah, shove I, into I remember it well. I thought it was actually quite engaging. You remembered it, you heard it? Oh yeah, I did indeed. And I and it was people actually talking about the nuts and bolts of doing their job yeah. on the BBC. I was having a ball. Well, and I also think it's makes it less of a an institution. It's it's above yeah. us. And it becomes more one of us when we see that they're making tough decisions, they occasionally make mistakes, you hear their reasoning behind how this came about, how this happened, and you think, oh, okay. It humanises. Yeah. Well, that without listening to you say that, I 
That wasn't my intention. Oh, wasn't it? Well, I didn't set out to make it like that, but I realised that's what I was achieving. Yes. And it was good. It was and it good. Worked. And yeah. it worked. And um, I did it three months on with Paddy Feeney, the great, great Paddy Feeney broadcaster. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Serious, uh, recently deceased, unfortunately. Indeed. And um, John Burt came into being the director general. Mm-hmm. He saw that this feedback programme was not made by an independent producer. So... I had to stay with the program, but it was being made outside. And interestingly, an outside company. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, this company, like any other company, was fearful of its contract. So yes, didn't of want, course. Didn't yeah. want to run. So I didn't have the freedom. And I thought, right, good things come to an end. And so I stopped doing that. And then there was another program I did, which was the Highlights program. And then a Radio 4, which is the um, national station um, of the BBC in the UK. That's the, the highest program is when you do like a roundup of the yes, week. So yes. But and they but they don't pick get in week. a yeah pick of the week. They get yes. a celebrity to come in and they, say. Well, they, I used to do it every. Uh, you you week. used to do it. Yes, with Paddy. I mean, ah. three months with off, three months on. So when okay. I was doing right on, he was doing pick of the week. Yeah. Pick of the world, we called it, and then we swapped. Yeah. Um, and there came a point where there was a refugee presenter from Radio Four who needed a slot. And much to my upset, yeah. they gave her my programme. And I just knew that's that's freelancing. Yeah. You have to take a deep breath. And my poor husband had to listen to me rant and rave. But I did manage to keep it at home rather than... <laughs> I'm take telling you now, <laughs> 20 odd years later. <laughs> and then, But fortunately, I was a producer, so I could, I could then release my creative instincts through documentaries. So tell us about the documentaries you've made. I should have brought a list. I... Um, an early one was um, an anniversary program about the Salem witch hunt of 1693, ah, yes. which was fabulous. And I got to interview the great Arthur Miller, so which was wonderful. Really? Yeah, which was wonderful. What was he like? He was asleep. He was a, well. He was very old, probably when you interviewed him. He, he was. It was interesting. We we turn up. We turn <laughs> to his ranch in Connecticut. And, and that, and the, I don't think ha- you can have a ranch in Connecticut. I don't. I don't. Oh, sorry. Farms. They have farms in sorry, Connecticut. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So sorry. Let's yeah. get this right. <laughs> They're farms in Connecticut. Yeah. And the housekeeper said he's up at his studio. Okay. Um, no, I have to apologize. That was your classic editor coming in saying, "I'm sorry, you've got wrong word usage yes, I there." Have. I apologize <laughs> for that. So he had a, he had a, he had a, a piece of space. Yes. In the northeastern United States. Yes. Okay. There we go. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it yeah. at that. That's, that's good enough. Yeah. And uh, she said he's up at his uh, studio in this little hut. So we go up there, and there's one of these uh, fly things, you know, with beads hanging down from the door frame. Yes. And there he's asleep, and you think, crikey, now what do we do? So all we could do, well, I was there with my husband, because uh, we went off for a holiday afterwards, was just rattle the beads. Uh-huh. And we realised afterwards it was a ploy. To make it, you go away. To make you go away. <laughs> and then he said, and he was in his, he was 80-something at the time, he says, I've got tennis in 10 minutes. Okay, thought, so that's yeah. very wise. Yeah. But I anyway, I, he was absolutely, he was wonderful. I'd rather have 10 minutes with Arthur Miller than, you know, an hour with many yeah, other people. Yeah. He was, and, and, I, and one of the things I uh, remember him saying is we talked about um, how, especially in modern times, how ideas can be whipped up into a frenzy as happened in the Salem witch hunt. Yes. As happened in Nazi Germany. Indeed. And he said, we've got to keep our eye on the ball. It could happen again. Well, he his, could. Oh, obviously, we're, you know, I... I don't want to talk politics, but we're seeing it happening now. Of course. Um, now let's walk away from it. There, the you know, Arthur Miller has claimed with his Crucible, the the play he wrote about the Salem witch hunts, that it was based on the McCarthyism of the nineteen fifties. 
um, where he watched people being whipped up into frenzy over, over mm. you know, communism. Hunting, yeah, hunting yeah. down the Reds. Yes, yes. Um, so that was my, perhaps one of my, people say, who's the most important person you've interviewed? I'd say him. Yeah, that's a good one. That's, that's a, a good, good one. It I'm is impressed. A good one. And I, yeah. yes, I. Um, you lucky thing, you. Uh, and is that your greatest, you know, because one of the things no, we all It wasn't offer. my greatest interview. It just okay. happened, my greatest <laughs> name. I was, but one of the most interesting, I mean, lots of people. Um, what's, your, what's the one you're most proud of? The one that, that if you wanted anything to go on your tombstone, you'd think, you know, that'd be it. One of the most fascinating, wasn't a big name, was a lady who worked in service um, in the 50s, in service being in a big household, and she was the cleaner. Yes. And I remember just relating to this woman, and I, I was, she was, she had me eating out of her hand because she was so fascinating the way she talked. Lady, lady in her 80s, no doubt deceased now, and about how she would climb up ladder to get back from a date out with her boyfriend because she wasn't yes. allowed she only had one day off a month yeah i remember her one day off a month yeah in, in wow. a big house somewhere in wiltshire or something um i have a dreadful memory i'm trying to remember any other big names like say judy dench hugh jackman i'm name dropping now name drops keeps falling off my head and is he as gorgeous in yes the flesh? yes yes i mean oh. this was when he was at the national theater this was a good 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and it wasn't quite the big name, but those eyes, those eyes. And yes, I mean, that's not even, we should stop talking about this. It's turned into kind of yeah. more like a women's erotic bodice ripper but show. You've got it's to, like, <laughs> you've got, when you're interviewing big names, you have to interview them in exactly the same way as anybody else. You have to. Why? You, you don't get the same, I don't feel I get the same goods material. I look them straight in the eyes. I'm looking at you, Katie. Yeah. And to me, you're lovely, Katie. That's lovely, Martin Clunes or whoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly the same. I want. I want to see the person. I don't want to see the the celebrity. Can I name drop? Please do. Are you kidding me? I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm absolutely slapjawed. I poured. I poured wine all over Sir Peter Hall's lap once when I was trying oh, to. Oh, do you? Yeah. How did that happen? Well, he was had a glass of wine. I try not to drink. I don't drink when I'm interviewing. Yeah. And I, I went to grab my notes and knocked his glass oh, all over him. Oh dear. Um. And and did he? Uh, he, he, he was he was wonderful. He said he could see I was really upset about yeah. that, and he said, "Don't worry, don't worry." He said, "Let me get you another one." He said, "Don't worry, you know, calm as anything." Um, the I had a very lovely interview quite recently in the last six months with Marin Alsop, who's this wonderful American conductor. I see this? She is one of the top five conductors in the world. Um, and and unusual for a woman to be exactly. a conductor. She's a bit of a trailbreaker. She is. She's absolute pioneer. She really is. And I'd love to work with her again if there's any chance. Yeah. Then I keep fantasizing that there might be because she at the end of the interview, I, I was doing a program about following an artist as they prepare for a premiere, world premiere. This is went out in February this year. And she when we finished, she sort of looked into the middle distance and went, we need more programs like this. And I couldn't agree with you more. About Absolutely. explaining music. And I, a little, little voice inside me sort of wanted to put my hand up and go, me, me, I want to do it. I want to do this. Can I do this with you, <laughs> But it sounds, you can hear the sheer pleasure you get from your work. It just shines oh, it's lovely. through. When I, when I get the work I want, which is not always, you know, my life, everybody, yes. there's, bore, there's dull bits in every job. Let's get this yeah. straight. I'm yeah. only, we're only getting the highlights here. Yeah. When it's right, I mean, like today, lovely. Yeah, having good fun. We're having good fun. We're having we? a ball here. Yeah. It's uh, and and you see this continuing on. Are you going to continue to be a freelance radio program maker? I hope so. I do. I mean, I'm, I have to admit, um, especially as I turn to young Chelsea to my right, 
Yes, yes, our wonderful sound engineer, Chelsea. I can turn up mic here to say hello to Chelsea. Um, I feel that I am at the end of my career. Now I've got to make decisions now. How long do I keep going? I mean, there's no reason why I shouldn't. Um, But selling is getting harder and harder. And I've got a lot of skills to offer. But getting them on the air through the BBC is getting harder and harder. And if we could turn back to podcasts, that is where I think the future is. I think there's so much talent out there, so many good ideas that are becoming increasingly difficult to sell to a broadcaster that people are going to give up and they will fund themselves and they will make good audio online. Yeah, but you have to find it. I mean, the, the thing about the BBC is you think, oh, I've, I've got to do a whole lot of dishes or mop the floor and, and I, let's listen to something interesting. And I just automatically oh, I see, I see, turn on yes. the BBC. Well, I think that's changing. I do think that. I mean, look how many people are listening to podcasts. Millions of people are listening to podcasts yeah. on their commute, on their daily commute. Mm-hmm. And they, um, you know, download each week or they highlight one that they like. And it pings into their mobile phones. Mobile phones, how has that changed our yes, lives? Yes, that's changed everything, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And also, uh, listen again on BBC iPlayer. Yes, that, that I think makes a huge difference. Huge difference. You don't have to tune in at the right time. You yeah. listen whenever you yeah. like. I, I can remember when they just started bringing it in and they, they bring it in for an occasional program. And I can remember being quite cranky. It's like, you cannot do this for the occasional program. I need it for all the programs. Yes, yes. But I'm hoping my next move is... I want to be able to get audio online, not on the air, online, without having to sell it. Because I know I've got a huge archive of programmes that I have the copyright to. Uh And I now have to upload them onto YouTube or not. Maybe BBC, uh, not uh, SoundCloud or one of the audio, one one of those big platforms or iTunes and get my own audience. I think it'd be cool. It'd be great. What a great adventure. It would be. Yeah, you'd be back to creating your own website. You could yeah. uh, maybe dig up the people that uh, go go find them that you had interviewed yeah. and see where they are now. So you could, you could talk with the person now about the program you'd done, say, 15 years yeah. ago. I think that'd be fascinating. It would be fascinating. And I will do it. I'm going through a sort of slight period of change, just sort of having stopped working for the BBC on a, on a certain programme recently, my choice. Um, and I'm now sort of taking a bit of a deep breath to think what's next. And I think online broadcasting is the future. I really do. Um, the BBC is commissioning stuff, I believe, just for online. I mean, look at television, look at BBC Three. Mm-hmm. That is just online. Yes. But of course, these things need budgets. Indeed, indeed. And, and the spare time. And spare. But then doing everything in your spare time is not the answer. You and I, well, I'm lucky enough that perhaps I can do a lot of this in my spare time. But young people, they've got, they've got to eat. It does yes. become a habit. You know, yes. you've got to earn a living. Yes. And until investors can see the value of podcasts and invest in them, give a general sponsorship salary or something... I, th- I do believe it will happen. It's not, it's not happening at the moment, but I do believe it will happen. Well, just... Uh that's very inspiring, and I think that that is a wonderful. I would if if I wasn't. I just have to tell one more story because that's a lovely place to end right mm. there. Except I am going to add one small little factoid. When they first invented the Gutenberg press, mm-hmm. they really couldn't figure out what to do with it besides print Bibles. Because why else would anybody have a book in their just house? Just remind us which century this was. The Gutenberg press was the fifteen hundreds. Thank you. Um, so they thought great little gadget. 
Yes. But at that point, um, it was the, um, they had kind of, got it down to a small art f- the business the business of creating illuminated manuscripts had become so efficient that uh, it was quite affordable for a prosperous merchant to have his own illuminated book of prayers or bible so we thought well this is yeah good invention there mr gutenberg but mm-hmm. really you know it's not going to change the world because there's nothing else to print besides the bible and they discovered that the Bible and pamphlets, you know, they discovered that actually uh, pornography. Um, so the most wow. successful first imprints coming out of the printing press were kind of racy novels, Good Lord. which are not by our standards racy. I mean, this is yeah. not Fifty Shades of Grey. No. You know, it's, it's not our definition of, a, of, of, of erotica, but it was theirs. And then some canny businessmen went, wait a minute, if people are willing to read this kind of tripe, then if this is the kind of drivel that people will actually pay money for, we can turn this into a business. And that's how it kind of started. So we have to... Well, I, I mean, def- maybe the mistake we're making, Nikki, is that we keep trying to talk to people. Uh, and we should be... We should be talking more sexy stuff. Then we get a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe all right. But I do definitely think that we are in a period of, of transition, big period of transition. And you're obviously at the front of it. Yeah. Yes. Well done, yes. you. Well, well done I don't you. about me, but yes, I, I do think we're at a well, very interesting stage. As someone who's got a long commitment to audio recording and to the power of the spoken word and is clearly moving into the, the, the embracing enthusiastically mm-hmm. the 21st century technology. We wish you the very, very best, and we look forward to hearing from you. So, Nikki Berenger, thank you so much for joining us today and talking My about your life as a, as a creative um, uh, in the creative industry and working and creating audio programs, and we look forward to seeing your next adventure. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, and follow us on Facebook, or subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with the latest news, events, and podcast updates. The newsletter is available through our Claret Press website or our Clapham Publishing Services website. Claret and Conversation is hosted by myself, Katie. It's produced by Alex Holmes and edited and engineered by Chelsea Moore. We've had additional assistance from Hugo Zhang. <laughs>